I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Father of all grace, we pray that the same spirit that inspired John to write these words would inspire our hearts, would give us illumination, and that in beholding your Son, we would become made more in his likeness. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you all so much for letting me be here. I told someone at All Saints this morning that because Chris was here, I was going to be here tonight, and they said, what did St. Bart's do to draw that short stick? Uh, so I hope you don't feel like this is a punishment, but it's a real honor to be able to be with you. If you have a Bible and like to open it to John chapter 6, we will be looking uh, specifically at verse 51, and as we look at it, everybody's welcome to listen. So there's no pressure for you not to listen. But if there was a sermon you're thinking about tuning out, I'll tell you the type of person who it's sort of okay if you tune out of the sermon a little bit, which is sort of if you have been a Christian for a long time and you feel very comfortable uh, with your faith. In other words, you don't have doubts, everything's sort of figured out and crystal clear in your head. This sermon may not be that applicable to you. But if you are, you have faith or maybe you don't have faith, but you have questions as to what sort of thing is this like that we're doing in here? When we come in here and we sing these songs, we talk about Jesus, when we pray at night, like what is faith? If you have those sort of questions, I'm specifically going to address you. Because when we think about faith, there are a number of different like ways we could talk about it, you know? So it's like our faith in Jesus is it like a, a worldview, you know, like a lens through which we view reality? Is it an ethic? 
like a moral code that guides how we behave at work? Is it a sort of religious, pietistic obligation, things we do sort of having religious thoughts throughout the day? I think all of those answers are probably get at something about what the faith is. But tonight, I want to talk about faith as a gift. Faith in Jesus is a gift. I think that's what John, in recounting these words of Jesus, which we, we see here are hard words. It's not easy to read. It wasn't easy in the first century. And if you do have doubts, if you do have questions, I'm really happy you're here because this is as weird as it gets. Eat my body, drink my blood. It doesn't get weirder. So this is good. You're in like the inner sanctum of weirdness right now. And if we can behold this and look at it, and I think see it for what John includes it to be, which is Jesus saying, faith is gift. Well, I think we can be more confident as we leave in what this thing is. Or maybe a better way to say it would be, well, so before we left the house today, we just got a new refrigerator. And it wasn't technically a gift. It was kind of a gift in the sense that Best Buy gave it to us as a gift like a thank you gift after we gave them thousands of dollars. So in that sense, it was a gift. But uh, we had this refrigerator, and uh, the main thing I was looking for in the refrigerator was to keep stuff cold. That was like what I was looking out for. Well, before we leave the house today, Whitney is just describing everything this piece of technology, which costs more than my first three cars, uh, can do. It tells you when you're running low on milk, it tells you, it like senses how much water should come out in the cup so it doesn't overflow. It goes to the store for you, makes chit-chat with the sacker. Uh, it is an incredible device. So what he's telling me is all these things this refrigerator does. And it, so on the one hand, the gift of the refrigerator didn't change. It was sort of the whole time the fridge was the fridge. It was what it was, irrespective of my interaction with it. But you see that my, like, knowledge of the gift, in other words, Whitney trained me how to approach the gift, all of a sudden, like, new avenues opened up. And this verse, verse 51, which is weird, I think we're seeing here that we're to approach this gift of faith in three ways. We're supposed to rely on the gift, we're supposed to receive the gift, and we're supposed to remember the gift. So let's look at verse 51. I am, this is Jesus speaking, the living bread that came down from heaven. Now, if you have your Bible open, you'll see in verse 49, Jesus is riffing here on the manna that the Israelites feasted upon uh, in the wilderness. And you remember the thing about the manna, it was sort of this bread that came down, and the Israelites were never very satisfied with manna. Uh, and so what did they want? Well, they wanted quail. And I always thought, you know, if they like deep fried the quail in the manna, you could have sort of a McNugget situation. Anyways, I'm not sure that's relevant here. Put that aside. Uh, why did they want quail? You could say, well, maybe they were gluten intolerant. Maybe they just weren't ready for this bread. They didn't want it. They wanted something more tasty. It could be quail's more tasty. Actually, what we see in the Old Testament is something a little bit different. It's not just that the Israelites want something different tasting. So like instead of manna, they want quail because quail tastes better. Instead, it's that quail can be hunted. 
And manna has to be relied upon. In other words, manna comes every morning, and the thing about it is you can't gather it up. You can't store it. You can't put it in a far too expensive refrigerator, right? You have to depend upon God day after day supplying this gift. And the Israelites wanted to take matters into their own hand. They didn't want to rely upon the mercy and favor and gift of God. Instead, they wanted to snatch for themselves quail. They wanted to hunt. They wanted to presume upon life. And the truth is, there are a lot of folks who come to church and do very religious sort of things, but uh, they're not relying upon Jesus in the sense that what actually gives them psychological, existential relief at the end of the day is the number in their bank account, their prestige at work, the success of their kids. That's what actually, and, and it's easy to think that because like what you're doing, right? You don't have to live day by day because you can plan for months at a time or years at a time. You can store up for yourself this money or this reputation. Well, over the past year, what have we learned? That life is delicate. You know, James says, when you're going to go somewhere, don't say, I'm going to go to this town, or I'm going to do this sort of thing. You know, he says, instead say, if the Lord wills, I'll do this or that. And I'll be honest, before COVID, I think I would say, you know, if the Lord wills, and what I meant by that was just like, I'm going to go do this thing. And it's like, I use this expression, if the Lord wills. Well, over the past year, how many plans have you had disrupted over somebody getting a sore throat? A lot, probably. Just this past week, I was supposed to meet someone for lunch and wasn't able to. And so now when I say, if the Lord wills, like I actually do in the back of my head think to myself, I'm going to set this plan. And we're at All Saints, St. Bart's here, we're like planning all these things for the fall. And we're constantly saying, if the Lord wills, who knows? And what we see here is Jesus says, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. He's saying, I'm a gift. You have to rely upon me the way the Israelites relied upon manna. And if you want, so maybe Jesus is in your life in, in many different ways, but if you want to like experience the fullness of this faith, it is Jesus upon whom you have to rely for your day-to-day sustenance, for your sort of existential rest, not all these other things, which, listen, will fade. We will die. We will get sick. But Jesus is the true bread from heaven. We are to rely upon him. Look again at verse 51. We're to rely upon this gift, and we are to receive this gift. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now, you've been probably, you know, to vacation, Bible school, Sunday school, and you've heard this about with Jesus, you can have eternal life. You know, Jesus gives life everlasting, and that's true, but that's not so much the scandal when we read this. The scandal is, if anyone eats this bread, and the bread is himself, Jesus, he will live forever. 
In other words, it's not just like mental consent. It's not just that you think, yes, Jesus really lived and he was who he says he was. No. Faith is a gift, and this gift has to be received. And the image here is of eating. You we're to take Jesus, his life, and put him in our innermost being such that our energy, our lives, our like caloric output is derivative of Jesus because he's not just on the outside of us, but we have brought him into our innermost being. Now, that is a lot of sort of images. It's kind of abstract a little bit, you know, because it's sort of a word picture of eat this. And you say to yourself, okay, so where do I go? How do I eat it? I'll do it. Well, it's sort of a word picture. So it's, it's kind of elusive. Maybe you don't know, and that's okay. The good news is in this passage, I actually think we're given a hint as to how we can eat Jesus, how we can have the life of Christ brought into us. It's through his spirit, and it's through his word. Look at verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. If we are to have the life of Christ, if we are to have this gift of God, this manna from heaven, this provision of God upon which we rely, brought into ourselves, we can't do it on our own. It will require the Holy Spirit of God. Just as God, so think of God as an invisible, metaphysical, having no flesh or component parts in Him. And in the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity takes upon flesh. And then the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, puts upon us, fleshy creatures, Himself such that God, metaphysical, takes upon physicality, and we, physical creatures, take upon metaphysicality. It's supernatural. It's crazy. So this is your conversion story. The Spirit is absolutely essential in your conversion. In your faith, however strong or weak your faith is, it is a gift of the Spirit. Paul says he did not come with persuasive words or highfalutin arguments. No, he came preaching the cross of Christ, foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews. And he relied upon the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, not to make dumb people smart or bad people good, but to make dead people alive. So you see why you need the Holy Spirit, because we can't do that on our own. It isn't just we need to like be a little bit better it's that we need to be made alive. So I have good news before I say anything else. If you have faith, no matter how small, no matter how weak, no matter how struggling, no matter how resistant, that is evidence of the Spirit of God. Our bishop, all of our bishop in here, Philip Jones always says that dead people don't struggle. And even a little bit of faith is evidence that the Spirit is working in your life. If you grew up in the church, you sang the words to this hymn, my favorite hymn, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew 
he moved my soul to seek him. The Spirit is absolutely essential in conversion. But oftentimes, I think y'all know that. I think we know that, right? That we're moved from dead to alive. You have to have the Spirit. But it's easy to think to yourself, well, the Spirit is sort of what gets us going, but then there's sanctification, our growth in godliness, and that's sort of up to you, right? So the Spirit makes you alive, but now you sort of have to, you know, just be alive on your, on your own, your own strength. No, Jesus says the Spirit gives life. Flesh is no hope at all. The Spirit is no less essential in your sanctification, your growth in godliness, than he was in your regeneration. If you and I are to have the life of Christ radiate from our inner being, which is the fullness of the gift, we have to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, has to apply the work and ministry of Christ. And the good news is he is pleased to do it. God says he, he's a father. And any father, if, you, if your child asked you for bread, you wouldn't give him a stone. You wouldn't give him a snake. And so I would invite you even now. You don't have to wait till the end of the service. Even now. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you fill me? Would you come inside me? Would you well up within me? Would you give me a fresh filling, a fresh renewal, a fresh sense of your presence that I could not, not just be made alive as a Christian, but that I could know greater and greater authority and freedom and life. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no hope at all. Second, we take Christ's life inward. We eat Christ through His Spirit and through his word. Again, look at verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. All throughout the New Testament, but particularly in the mouth of Christ, his spirit and his word are linked hip to hip. And this is a tragedy, I think, of the modern church that we're so bifurcated and sort of dichotomized between word people and spirit people. There are people who just every Tuesday morning, they're at BSF, they have their, you know, I forget who, K. Arthur or whatever, the Bible studies, they're word people, you know, and they know backward to forward, they do Bible drills, they're word people, and they're very hesitant of all this talk about you need the Spirit of God. And then you have people who are very passionate about being filled with the Spirit, but they haven't dusted off their Bible since they had to kill an ant in their house, right? It shouldn't be that way. The Spirit works through the Word of Christ. It is the Word, this book, the words of Christ, when we put them in our heart, when we take uh, Ezekiel, does this crazy thing, which I do not recommend you doing, though I will be honest, one time I uh, ate a piece of paper because my friends paid me $10 to do it, but one time Ezekiel eats the scroll from God. Amazing. Don't do that uh, because it's, it's an illustration. It's a word picture. The word picture is, uh, and after eating the piece of paper, I did not feel good. So just so you know, this is all free advice. Uh, 
It's a word picture that in the Old Covenant, it was a promise of something that Ezekiel did physically, eating the scroll, the words of God. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, it's a, it's a picture of one day the law of God, God's words, don't just have to stay on the outside of us, but by the Spirit in the New Covenant, these words can be put inside of us. In other words, uh, in the Old Covenant, like the Israelites were told, that when you build a house, build a little fence on the roof called a parapet because people would hang out on the roof in the ancient Near East and someone might fall off, they may die. So you should build a little fence around the roof. In the new covenant, you and I are so to have internalized, so to have eaten the word of God by the Spirit that we're told, love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself. So that if you're, you know, building a pool in your backyard, God doesn't actually give you, like, physical words to say, now remember, you need to put a cover on top of the pool. He didn't tell you that, like, level of detail like he did with Israel. Instead, he tells you, love your neighbor. And the Word of God is supposed to, like, indwell you that you don't even, like, think of chapter and verse. You just think about, like, okay, I don't want anybody to fall in the pool. So I want, if it costs $500 extra or whatever, I want the little cover, you know. Um, that is an evidence that you have eaten Christ, that you have received this gift, not just acknowledged it, but that it has come into your innermost being, that you don't have to consult the words exactly, but it's that having so consulted the words and brought them in that the Spirit has just made them your decision-making process is different. You're what we might call wise. You're just a wise person. We receive the gift. We rely upon the gift. Lastly, we remember the gift. Again, look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see, this gift that you have been given and I have been given this relationship that we can have with Almighty God is totally free. You, and, uh, gods often, just different gods that we read about, will require sacrifices from people. You know, like, give me this and I'll give you this quid pro quo. The God of the Bible does the exact opposite. He comes to us and he doesn't demand a sacrifice from us in the first instance. Rather, he sacrifices his very beloved son. This gift, this bread upon which you are to rely, that you are to receive, is my flesh. It pointed to the fact that, yes, this gift is free, but it is extremely costly not to us, but to God. And we are to remember it. In a moment, we will receive the Eucharist, this gift, this Thanksgiving meal. And it's more than a memorial meal, right? We're not just thinking about the sacrifice and death of Christ, but it's not less than a memorial meal. Do this in remembrance of me, recalling Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. All throughout the Eucharist is this remembering uh, the, I'll end with this. 
there's a theologian named Miroslav Volf who has been important in my own life just as, as I've read him. He's from Yugoslavia. His father was sort of a lay, charismatic pastor in Yugoslavia. Um, and I'll wrap up with this. When he was a little boy, he was playing in his front yard. They're dirt poor. Um, and a carriage came by, and a soldier picked up his uh, five-year-old brother sort of by the belt just as a joke, was just going to pick him up and then drop him just as kind of to be funny. And he didn't let go in time, and there was a fence as they were exiting, and the boy got trapped between the carriage and the fence, and it killed the boy. And the Yugoslavia government was going to punish the soldier for killing Miroslav's uh, younger brother. And Miroslav's dad walked across uh, Yugoslavia. He couldn't afford transportation to get there. He walked across the country to go to the man's trial, and he pleaded with the judge for mercy. And Miroslav's sort of devotional writings are a reflection upon this incredible, lavish grace that he saw his mom and dad give. So at one point, he's reflecting upon this. Uh, it's kind of a long quote, but this will be the last thing we say. He's reflecting upon there's an annoying guy who comes to church. We've all been there. We've all probably been the person, you know, the annoying person at church. And uh, his parents keep inviting him over to dinner. And this annoys young Miroslav, who's a teenager, who doesn't like all of these people who are sort of rude and feels like takes advantage of his parents, getting invited to uh, dinner after. So I'll read this quote. They, his parents, were extending the invitation to this stranger who was rude and difficult because, he says, they did not think one should hold the table of the Lord at which my father presided in the morning apart from the table of our home at whose head he was sitting at noon. I'm not sure how much they knew about the original unity of the Eucharistic celebration and the agape meal, but they clearly practiced their inseparability. Had I have ob objected, but must we invite him every time he comes? They would have responded, as the Lord gave his body and blood for us sinners, so we ought to be ready to share with strangers not only our belongings, but also something of our very selves. The circle of our table was opened up by the wounds of Christ, and a stranger was let in. That's how you can know if you have relied upon this gift of Christ, if you've received Christ, if he's come in through the Spirit and the Word into your innermost being, if when you remember this sacrifice, this death for you, as we make the sign of the cross, if it sets us right vertically with God, if we then make the sign of the cross horizontally, acknowledging that I have been shown grace, but Christ is so in me that I live that grace out. You get out what you put in. If Christ is in you, you will live out, as you remember his sacrificial death, you will live out his sacrifice with others. Let's pray. Father, when we weren't a people, you called us a people. When we had no name, you gave us one. When we were dead, you made us alive. Father, 
as we come to your table, the table of your Son, as we partake of his very body and his very blood, we pray that we would not rely upon anything on earth, money, prestige, power, comfortableness. We would rely upon nothing but the day-by-day sustaining grace of your Son as we eat the bread, as we drink the wine. Would you, with your word and your spirit, fill us And in recalling his death, resurrection, and ascension, would we live out this gospel story, this story of your son setting all things right? And would it begin with us in this room tonight? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.